This is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kemi Dahl from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Washington here in Seattle in the United States. Um, the uh, topic of this discussion is going to be the publication in JAMA Oncology of the article Estimated Performance of Transvaginal Ultrasonography for Evaluation of Postmenopausal Bleeding in a Simulated Cohort of Black and White Women in the United States. Kemi, thank you so much and, uh, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pedro. I really appreciate you having me. Well, um, obviously, again, congratulations on such an important uh, publication. And um, I wanted to first by, uh, start by asking you uh, if we can discuss the disparities between um, black and white women in the U.S. as it pertains to endometrial cancer mortality. And also was wondering, is this similar for other types of cancers as well? Um, yeah, so um, it is similar in that black women in the U.S. do tend to have higher cancer mortality um, across the board on most of our common cancers. What's unique about endometrial cancer is the magnitude of the disparity. So black women with endometrial cancer in the United States have an over 90% higher five-year mortality after diagnosis compared to white women. And that difference, um, that black-white difference in mortality is actually larger than what we see in breast cancer in the U.S. It's larger than cervical cancer. You know, it's larger than colon cancer. A lot of these other disparities that we hear more about, um, which I think is so um, important in terms of endometrial cancer and gynecologic cancers in general. Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting fact. And uh, that's the reason I'm sure, obviously, you wanted to target this specific question. But one of the things also you mm -hmm. mentioned is that um, black women are more likely to be diagnosed with advanced stage endometrial cancer irrespective of the insurance status that they have. Um, I was wondering if you can speculate as to why you think that might be the case. Yes, um, I feel like I spent all day speculating on this question, Pedro. Um, <laughs> it's the focus of a lot of my work because, um, you know, the question is why, especially in the United States context, we really think that, you know, insurance is, should be kind of the level, leveling the playing field with regard mm -hmm. to healthcare access. So that should be enough, especially in terms of disparities. So I think with this question, it actually asks us to pose a little bit harder question. So one is, you know, access to healthcare isn't the same thing as the same quality of care. So one of the things that we know is that black women don't uh, receive the same quality of care generally, but even specifically within endometrial cancer, where in an earlier paper, we demonstrated that black women with insurance in the United States were less likely to have guideline adherent workup when presenting with postmenopausal bleeding. So that's one aspect is just simply quality of care. But then even beyond that, um, some other work we've done have demonstrated that black women are more likely to wait or to delay in presentation of bleeding symptoms because of prior negative experiences, especially around their gynecologic and reproductive health care. So that's another issue. Um, and then I think I'm generally interested in the ways in which um, larger kind of environmental factors like racism and discrimination might also play a role of um, creating more biologically aggressive um, either tumors or tumor environments, you know, where black women may have less of the, may have less of a time window to be able to seek care and get an early diagnosis. So um, those reasons and probably many more that have yet to be discovered. Um, but I think it's why it's such a fascinating area to research. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and, and one of the things that also that I, I wanted to just starting to get a little bit into the, the context of, uh, of your manuscript and your study, uh, mm -hmm. with regards to the current guidelines of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology regarding mm -hmm. postmenopausal bleeding and, and certainly um, what do the guidelines tell us? Are these guidelines optimal, suboptimal for black women? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in many ways, this, that question was the, was the goal of the study just to assess, because again, we come from a place where we realized that black women weren't getting guideline inherent care. And then we thought, well, do we even know that the guidelines are, are, you know, um, equally effective. So right now, um, the guideline states a choice. So if a woman comes in and reports postmenopausal bleeding, you can do a transvaginal ultrasound, you can do an endometrial biopsy, or you can do a DNC. And this is theoretically fine because we had previously based this assumption on population-based studies that demonstrated that transvaginal ultrasound was highly accurate in determining who needed a biopsy. But what's even before this study, what I think is interesting is that um, we had already had other publications demonstrating that endometrial thickness was not uniform across the different kinds types of endometrial cancer. So, um, you know, one of the things that drove this hypothesis and why I did was I was concerned that the guidelines were suboptimal was knowing that black women were more likely to have the quote unquote type two or non endometrioid type cancers. And also knowing this smaller, but, but present body of work that those cancers were less likely to cause the kind of global hyperplasia of the endometrium that is picked up, um, with endometrial thickness on the ultrasound. So I, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'll no, stop there. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would say that with the question of suboptimal, um, you know, certainly now with the study, I would say that if we have a community that we know has a higher risk of mortality um, and that we know that the type of cancers they get are less likely to be picked up by a transvaginal ultrasound, I would not call guidelines that offer any pathway equally without a question or assessment of risk to be optimal for that community. Yeah. And, and, and actually, that brings me to the question I was going to jump in and ask you. And this is also a question I was discussing with one of our um, international uh, fellows, uh, Emma Allison from Australia. And, and mm -hmm. she, she brings up an interesting point. She, she talks about access to care. And yep. obviously, one of the concerns that she raises is, well, if we're saying that transvaginal ultrasound may potentially miss or we move away from the concept of transvaginal ultrasound as a strategy, Uh, are we going to even miss even more patients because access to sampling is going to be challenging? Okay. I want to tell Emma, this is a great question. <laughs> and I agree. So, um, so one thing is that right now we are, at least in the United States context, so one of our ongoing studies is looking at practice patterns of providers nationally of all specialties. Because we're actually trying to understand what is both the preference, predilection, and access to endometrial biopsy. But it's also one of the reasons why in the paper we don't recommend immediate practice change. Um, and we had to actually push back a little bit against that from reviewers because um, I don't think that that is responsible because of this issue of access. We don't actually know if women can get biopsies. And then the second thing is that, you know, we are dealing with a community that, um, generally speaking, has been harmed in many ways by the healthcare system. And so we can't just run out with an invasive procedure without the community engagement required and those kinds of steps to really understand how best to introduce this idea. Um, so I think it's a great question. And I think that's exactly why we need more research to understand what access looks like. And if we have to modify things on that end before we actually change the guidelines 
completely. Really great. So then now getting into the details of the, of the study, the objective mm -hmm. you mentioned is to compare performance of recommended transvaginal ultrasound endometrial thickness threshold as a screening method to prompt endometrial biopsy by, by race in a, in a mm -hmm. simulated cohort. So that brings me to the question on the methodology. Um, a simulated cohort of postmenopausal white and black women, what does it mean to build a simulated cohort? Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing I'll say is it takes a lot longer than I thought it would. So, um, you I know, saw there's... That. I saw that from the, from the duration of the analysis. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. So the, there's no single data set that actually held all the data that we needed. And, and, you know, in the United States, we don't have a single healthcare system. We don't have a single, you know, data set to get all of this information. So we essentially had to calculate the estimates of each of these parameters for the best available data. So I'm going to, we did this for every step, but I'm going to give one example that would hope, hopefully kind of explain. So we started with the U.S. census, so the actual U.S. census number of black and white women by age, and then the cancer registry, which is our best national estimate of cancer cases by, tape, by type, by age, et cetera. So we use that to, to create um, by calculating the incidence against the population that we know is in the United States of essentially a five-year time period of black and white women with endometrial cancer. So how we would then think about bringing in simulation is, well, We're going to assume that these women presented with bleeding, and we know that 90% of women with postmenopausal bleeding don't have endometrial cancer. So we're going to calculate out if this is the number of women who did have endometrial cancer, here is the theoretical number of women who were symptomatic and didn't, and ultimately didn't have cancer. And so then that creates the base population of symptomatic women. And then we go step by step with that moving forward. So now we have estimates of, you know, fibroid prevalence, for example by age. And then we can apply those estimates from cohort studies and from um, studies from the National Institute of the Environment in the United States. We have some of these estimates. We can apply that to the population to then estimate how many of these women would then have fibroids by age decade. And then we can move forward from there. So that is that was the step-by-step -step process to create the simulated cohort. Um, and for what it's worth, our methods section was cut down massively, <laughs> appropriately, <laughs> during the review. Um, but I hope that that clarifies things. Well, actually, no, as you, as you mentioned that, and I'm glad you did, uh, one of the things that I always stress to the, not only the, the, the fellows in the journal, but also the fellows here, I said, you know, the sign of a very good paper is a very extensive methodology <laughs> section in the manuscript. Yeah. So um, the follow-up question to that, you mentioned also um, – Details regarding one of your major covariates here, the presence mm -hmm. of fibroids. And, of course, obviously, mm -hmm. I, would, I guess I would play into the results of an ultrasound. Um, yeah. How do you come up with the estimate of fibroid prevalence? Yeah. So the, there was data from the National Institute of the Environmental Health Sciences. They had a uterine fibroid study where they were able to ask women not, not just assess whether they had fibroids at the time, but whether they had a history of fibroids. And then based on their, the women's recollection of, do they have a history of fibroids? They then calculated the incidence of fibroids um, by having a history or not by age incidence. And this has been done a few times subsequent to that. So what we were essentially able to do is take those estimates by race. Again, so we had to find studies that would do this, but also report it by race and say, okay, overall, this is the average estimate uh, prevalence of a history of fibroids by race. 
So in this population, 76%, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but this many percentage and this many percentage. And then because we know that, now we know whether you had a history or not reported, we actually know your likelihood of having fibroids by age by the incidence rates reported in other studies. So then we could calculate out from there. So again, it was a very meticulous process because we had to follow how the data was originally captured and then follow that in the same order to make the estimates for each of the parameters for the study. So hopefully that's a little bit clarifying. Yeah, great. So then now, obviously, the, the main results. What did mm -hmm. you find in your study? Mm. Well, unfortunately, we found that the current transvaginal ultrasound threshold of four millimeters or more to prompt biopsy um, would miss many more endometrial cancer diagnoses in black women compared to white women. So from a sensitivity parameter, so just the, the percentage of cases that would be picked up, it would be 47.5% for black women compared to 87% for white women. Um, and I think the negative predictive value is a really helpful parameter kind of on the um, population level. And so that would mean that if a white woman received a result that she did not need a biopsy, that would be 97% correct. For a black woman, it would be 92% correct. Mm. And so I think that those are those are really important to present together, right? Because the sensitivity does give you a sense of, wow, we're missing like over half of the cases. <laughs> That's a problem. Negative predictive value is helpful, though, too, because it really gets at the point of the test, right, is to appropriately identify. So that can sound reassuring. But what I like to come back to is this is not a test that's determining whether somebody is having a hysterectomy. This isn't a test determining, you know, whether somebody's getting chemo. Mm -hmm. This is a test that's literally just saying, should we get a definitive diagnosis? Yeah. And there should not be a difference by race. And certainly the group that right now is most risk at risk for late diagnoses and death should definitely not be performing lower. So I like to put it in context, um, but that was our primary finding. And there was really no threshold that the that transvaginal ultrasound performed equally by race. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's a very impacting uh, uh, statement. And, and as you said, I mean, obviously, it's uh, going on the assumption that it's the same for everyone. So I'm really glad that, that you highlighted that, which then brings me to, to my next question. Um, you make a point about decreasing the endometrial mm -hmm. thickness threshold from five millimeters to three millimeters cut off. And by doing so, increasing the sensitivity and the negative predictive value uh, will decrease. What are mm -hmm. the uh, implications of, you know, for someone that reads this statement and says, translate this for me? Okay, yes. <laughs> so that actually came from, so when I went into this, I naively assumed, oh, well, it might, our threshold just might be off. You know, maybe we set the threshold too high. And so if we lower the threshold, we'll get to a place where we won't have the same degree of, of inequity or really we'll have an equitable um, outcome. And so the three millimeters to five millimeters came from the fact that initially when, oh, excuse me, initially when this four millimeter threshold was landed on, people were trying out all different things, you know, 10 millimeters. For, so we, had, we have a lot of estimates of how the different thresholds perform. And so when we moved down to three, which would assume that you would then capture more cancer cases, we did see that. Um, but the problem was that it still wasn't racially equitable and more black women would still have misdiagnoses. And so ultimately though, the test became a little bit better of a discriminator. So we have something called the area under the curve or the AUC, which is a global measure of test quality. Above 0.5 is really 
appropriate for any test. Really, above 0.7 is 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 meaningful. 0.5 is basically has any utility. And so I think the AUC at three millimeters was 0.6. So it was better. But we use 0.7 as a threshold of a meaningful test in you know in diagnose in diagnoses in the United States. So it's still not meeting that threshold. Yeah. And, and one of the things also I noticed that uh, I think you did some subgroup analysis of age. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't think that there was any difference, right, in diagnostic performance no. among the different age groups. Why, why do you think that might be? Um, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't actually thinking there would be too much of a difference by age. But mm -hmm. I, thought, I think we had a reasonable reviewer question, which was asking, asking that question. And so we looked into it and... At the same time, while we were doing this study, um, a wonderful researcher by the name of Megan Clark um, and her team at Mayo, they published a cross-sectional study, so very different design, um, looking at women who came in for postmenopausal bleeding to a, to a single clinic there. And they actually were unable to find a meaningful discrimination in transvaginal ultrasound mm -hmm. for the women over 60. Um, and they included both endometrial cancer and um, CAH or endometrial hyperplasia. So there had been some evidence that potentially based on age, transvaginal ultrasound may be less and less, um, mm -hmm. less and less uh, effective. We did not find that age difference. And I think that that's probably because, um, you know, we didn't include uh, CAH as a potential outcome. Um, and there, there are a few other differences between the cross-sectional study design and our more of a cohort study. Um, but that's where the question came from. And I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that ultimately we didn't end up seeing a difference. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's amazing as we read manuscripts, a lot of times, uh, you know, you, you brought up a, a very interesting point that it's like, well, a reviewer wanted this information. So yeah, I mean, I'm just being honest. <laughs> I mean, I think we should, we should be transparent, you know, I was like, oh, I didn't think about it that way, but we can. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Right. Um, so one of the other things also that I, you know, and of course, obviously this comes up in discussion. Um, many might question, well, you know, the, uh, yeah, I can see how a, a submucosal fibroid might impact these results. Yes. Does the location of where the fibroid is uh, impact the outcome? Yeah, so um, uh, we agreed. I thought it was a great question. So um, I, I wanted to have what we might consider like more of a conservative analytic approach. And so um, at least in the sensitivity. And so we said, okay, well, what if instead of just saying you have fibroids, So that's going to uh, impact the measurement because the idea of it, the, 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 you know, the idea of why it matters that you have fibroids is that fibroids can distort the measurement of the endometrium. So that measurement quality is lower. And so then the visibility is worse. Um, and I thought it was very reasonable to say, okay, instead of just saying all fibroids, what if we just say submucosal fibroids are much more likely to distort the endometrium. And so we did that analysis where, we were able to find um, large cohort studies that gave us the distribution of fibroid location by race, mm -hmm. and then again, applied that to the cohort. And so then said, okay, if, if the fibroids, if only submucosal fibroids of women who had fibroids um, distorted the endometrium, what would be fine? And so we did find that it did improve the sensitivity overall of this strategy on a national level to about 61% for black women. Mm -hmm. um, the negative predictive value did not move very much, 93%. And the AUC, however, was still 0.6. And this is, I think this gets at um, one of the other reasons why the test is not as good in black women is because of the issue of the type 2. 
So you have the submucosal, excuse me, I want to say two things actually. Mm -hmm. So two issues here. One, submucosal fibroids, even limiting to that, black women are more likely to have submucosal fibroid location. So that was interesting and something I actually didn't know. And I'm like, it's, you know, if I clone myself, I want to do research on that. But then the second thing is that um, because of the histology issue that also um, contributes to this inequity, even when limiting the submucosal fibroid location, you still have a higher prevalence of these type two histologies in black women, which are still less likely to be picked up using the threshold method. So really important question. And again, it does, um, I think it's kind of the opposite extreme. Is it, is it all fibroids or only these fibroids? Mm. And we see that though there is a difference, we still have an inequity. Yeah, really very interesting. And I didn't know that fact either about the submucosal fibroid. Um, now, uh, the next question uh, comes to us from uh, Eric. Uh, Eric Estrada is one of our fellows. He's from Guatemala. And he, mm. uh, he, he basically poses a, a bit of a challenging question. Say, well, some might say, with any menopausal bleeding, it uh, doesn't matter what the ultrasound shows when you're always going to mm-hmm. get a biopsy. What would you say to someone like that? Oh, Eric, what I would say is that I also wish I lived in this ideal world <laughs> where every woman with postmenopausal bleeding has a biopsy. So as a GYN oncologist, I would also assume that's the case, but that's not actually what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so even just one, I would tell you that that's not hap- that does not happen in clinical practice because we see women who don't have biopsies based on their ultrasound results. But like just to get into the data, again, we did our group did a prior study with Sierra Medicare. And we demonstrated that only 70% of black women were even getting guideline inherent workup, including biopsies. And that was a cohort of women who were all over the age of 67, Interesting. 67. So it's not, we're not, care is not as ideal as we assume. And, and I think this is why it is so important to expand our lens when we think about, especially care for women before they get to us as GYN oncologists. Because we have to then incorporate not just OBGYNs, we might assume it all also biopsy, but a lot of seven-year-old women don't have an OBGYN. Mm-hmm. They're going to see a family medicine doctor, you know, they're, or they're telling their cardiologist, frankly, right there. And so the question really is, what is the information out there across all specialties for what to do with the symptom occurs? Mm-hmm. And when the information says, you could either refer and get a biopsy and go down this whole path, or you can get an ultrasound. Right. Then I think we then I think we start to see why we can we could potentially see so many women who aren't getting biopsies despite their age and the symptoms. So brilliant! I mean, that, that's absolutely uh, very glad you highlighted that. Uh, in, you know, as you said, ideal world, GYN oncologists would see uh, all of these patients and uh, and and uh, would get that information. So um, then now, actually uh, talking to and uh, talking about you know real world practice comes. The, the next two questions are from our fellows as well. The first one is from Cecilia Darín from Argentina. And um, mm-hmm. she's asking more about what do I do? Um, yeah. What should be the recommendation for a black patient with postmenopausal bleeding with a mm-hmm. normal, completely normal transvaginal ultrasound yep. and no risk factors? Yes. Great question. So I'm always going to start with a patient. So I would say one informed conversation with the patient. So I would explain a few things. One, I would explain that they do have an elevated risk of the type 2 non-endometrial types of cancers. And so they just have a higher risk of a false negative of this test. So from there, I would then strongly counsel them about any repeated episodes or bleeding or other symptoms. Because when we step back to put this work in a larger context, 
again, we, we do know that black women are more reluctant to bring up these symptoms, especially around bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, they, they have a history of having received reassurance from bleeding earlier on. You know, so I had terrible periods in my 20s and nobody cares. Like, why would this be a problem now? Mm-hmm. Um, so even just being able to make sure that they understand that this is kind of like a breast lump. Like, if you have a lump, you need to get it checked out. And if you get it checked out and it's okay, that's great. But if you feel another lump, we're not going to assume that that's fine. I want women to have that same feeling here. It's like, okay, this maybe this is okay, but you need to understand that I want you a little bit on a higher alert. And if this happens again, we're absolutely going to biopsy. So that's what I would say, too, at this point. is like, I don't think you can just repeat the transvaginal ultrasound. Um, so I think that's it. And I think we can be open to women saying, oh, well, knowing that I have a higher risk of a false negative, actually, I am okay with going forward with the biopsy. I would prefer to be definitive about this. Um, and then allowing women who are understand the risk to say, okay, I, sh- I will present or come back if this happens again. That's what I would say today is what we should do today. Great. Um, and then the next question is from Natalia Rodriguez, who also asks a, a clinical question. Um, her question is, based on the results of your study, do you recommend to perform a DNC dilatation and curatage for all black women who have uh, more than four millimeters endometrial thickness on a transvaginal ultrasound? Um, well, no. I mean, I think a biopsy is more reasonable. I think if you can't do a biopsy, then that is, that unfortunately is, I think, the next step. Um I just want to emphasize the caution and recognizing again, that this is more invasive and, and in general, you know, we have to, I mean, Natalia is not potentially coming from the U S context. I'm not sure. I don't want to assume. Um, but when we have a community that really doesn't have any risk of being accommodating to invasive procedures, mm-hmm. like we have to really tread carefully and we are studying this right now. So we are, you know, um, I don't know if this comes later or, or we'll talk about this, but you know, we're looking into a risk stratified approach, but also doing community engagement right now and talking about, you know, what are the things would be important that would have you want to get the biopsy or not? Like, what do you need to know? What kind of language do we need to use? Because I think that when the, when black women feel empowered, that oh, this is something that can help me for my health and move forward. I think we're having, we're having a different conversation and I'm just, I want to be really attentive, attentive to not causing harm by moving too fast, which I have to tell myself too, believe me, because I just want people to live. So like, <laughs> I want to do it. I'm just like, everybody change practice right now, but I think we can be more responsible than that. Yeah. And then uh, this next question is from Sarah Nasser. She's in Germany. Um, uh-huh. And she asks about uh, transvaginal ultrasound is easily accessible and low cost, which makes it an ideal screening tool uh, in low resource settings. Taking this into mm. account and the results of your study, How would you develop uh, a risk-based algorithm for screening for endometrial cancer in the U.S. population and in the global (laughs) population? I think that we could do a a whole podcast on that question. We could. Okay, so my I think my my one word answer is research, like Mm -hmm. through research. So, um, again, I so I can tell you what we are doing, and I think this is something that we should step back and and really we reevaluate anywhere we're you're seeing consistently poor outcomes that basically don't make sense, right? That like, why, why are these women getting diagnosed so late? So what we're doing right now is we have state level data um, from North Carolina in the United States, which is a state with a very large black, black population here, but also wide ranging socioeconomic status and rural urban settings. So it's, it's really ideal for this kind of work. So we're not collapsing, you know, race with poverty, you know, like race with one, one particular um, feature or another. 
So we have this data from a large health system and we're following women from the very beginning. So looking at what about comorbid dying conditions as I think about it, you know, what, what happens when not just fibroids are prevalent, uh, present, but you might have endometriosis thinking about how the ultrasound is interpreted. Um, and then also just the quality of these ultrasound reports, what is in there and what needs to be in there. So one thing that we heard from radiologists was that, you know, it's, it's, you, there's a different, there's differences in the quality of measuring the endometrial thickness. Like sometimes you only see a sliver of it and you measure that and that's what's reported, mm -hmm. but it's not, but what might not be reported is listen, 90% of the endometrium was not visible mm -hmm. because of this fibroid. So I think doing that kind of research can one help us understand, are there ways we can optimize these reports when the primary concern is postmenopausal bleeding Two, help us to understand what other risk factors may make that report less likely to be predictive of need for biopsy? I think like that is actually the research question because once we once we figure that out, um, and that might be a combination of social factors and a combination of other comorbid conditions, things like obesity, et cetera, then we can have a risk algorithm that says, listen, we need to work up this bleeding. And based on this algorithm, ultrasound is really not an ideal test for you. We should move to biopsy. Um, and that probably will improve diagnosis for everybody, right? Well, that's absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's an excellent suggestion. And I'm glad that how you highlighted and definitely underline the word research. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Kimmy, I know that uh, obviously I want to be respectful of your time. Um, just a couple more questions. Uh, what would you sure. see as the limitations of your study? Oh, it's that it's simulated data. I mean, like, you know, what I would love to have, a, like, patient data from the very beginning to the very end, like, from the time the woman was noticing bleeding in her bathroom to the time mm. she has her hysterectomy. I mean, that would be ideal, right? That we're not using estimates. So anytime you're using estimates, you know that there's margins of errors in one way or the other. And I think with what we, what we did with our sensitivity is actually really trying to think about what the most primary, most likely places of error that would impact the results the most. And so I do feel comfortable that this is, this is real and that we need to be attentive to this. Um, but ultimately it is simulating. So um, simulated. And I think the other pieces, when we consider the, when we consider the other, um, like what I was mentioning before, the other pieces of data that we already have had, but haven't put together, it does make sense, right? It does make sense that, you know, you have this different population of his, histology, this differential rate, you have a differential thickness based on the histology type, like it kind of correlates, but I always want to be careful that yes, this is, was very um, carefully done and checked a million times, but it is simulated data, which is why I want more and more studies that include black women, which is why we need to work on our, the diversity in our studies and our trials so that we can have the most accurate and frankly, most nuanced data, mm -hmm. um, because we can only look at here is what we've been measured, you know, what's been measured before. So that's what I would say is the main limitation. Fantastic. And one last question. Um, mm -hmm. what do you hope to achieve and disseminate by the results of this study? Mm. So very specifically, I want providers to have a heightened awareness around this incredibly increased risk of death from endometrial cancer that black women have. Like, and so I want them to consider every single step of care that they might be involved in and how they might optimize it to fight this disparity. You know, so I want primary care doctors to notice this and start telling their women about um, postmenopausal bleeding. I want GYN oncologists to notice this and think about 
time to consultation and time to surgery. I think I want all of us to have an increased awareness that even if we don't have all the answers now, because we know this is a problem, we're taking extra care when we see these women who are at such increased risk. And then on a broader level, I just, I hope that this helps us remember that we are just scratching the surface with most research on disparities in GYN oncology. Like there's so much waiting on us to consider, to reconsider and discover so that all women globally can thrive. And so I, I also hope that this is inspiring to anybody um, to know that there's so many unanswered questions. And that's, I mean, ultimately what makes research so fun. Dr. Kemi Dahl, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And once again, congratulations on the publication of this work. We really look forward to many more uh, from you and your team. And uh, once again, thank you for raising awareness to this really uh, very, very important point and uh, for all that you're doing for women with gynecological cancer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pedro.